This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode includes descriptions of graphic murder and gore, so listener discretion is advised. Please use caution for children under 13. Quote, his last expression was so neat. He had his hand out. I could see a piece of his skull coming off. And I can see this perfectly clean piece detaching itself from his head. Then he slumped in my lap. His blood and brains were in my lap. End quote. These are the words of Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis in her notorious 1963 Life magazine interview with Theodore H. White on her husband's assassination. The interview illustrates the vivid horror that not just Jackie, but all of America felt at JFK's gory end. It's also the basis for the 2016 film, Jackie. The Kennedy story and JFK's assassination still fascinate the American public today. Part of the fascination has to do with the Kennedys themselves and the perfect Camelot many believe their brief reign embodied. Another part of it stems from the mystery that continues to swirl around the assassination. Did Lee Harvey Oswald, a crazed, lonely leftist, cook up the assassination all on his own? Or were there others involved, possibly conspirators within JFK's own government? Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, the podcast where we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can listen to previous episodes of Conspiracy Theories, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. Many of you have asked us how you can help support the show, 
And if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. Today, we're talking about the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. He was shot on November 22, 1963, in Dallas, Texas, by ex-Marine Lee Harvey Oswald, who was a lone wolf shooter acting on his own, according to official reports. But most Americans don't believe Oswald acted alone. Polls since the late 1960s have continuously shown that a majority of Americans think the government's official story on the assassination is flawed. Since the 1960s, a host of writers, academics, amateur researchers, ballistics experts, and even the New Orleans district attorney have tried to puzzle out what really happened in Dallas that day and who else might have been involved. Even the government itself seems unsure of what happened. Two government agencies were tasked with investigating the assassination. The first was the Warren Commission, established in the immediate aftermath of the events of 1963. Later, in 1978, the House Select Committee on Assassinations was set up to further review the JFK investigation. Each came to different conclusions about key details of the assassination. In this episode, we'll examine the official story of the assassination, including the disagreement between the two government commissions tasked with piecing it together. It's a narrative with some seriously questionable elements. But it's the official narrative. Then next episode, we'll examine a few of the most prevalent and convincing conspiracy theories surrounding the assassination. Was Lee Harvey Oswald working with the Soviet Union? Cuba? The mob? The CIA? Was he a patsy for the so-called military-industrial complex? Was the fatal shot an accidental slip of the trigger in the hands of a security guard? Or was he, as the official story suggests, the sole shooter acting on his own violent initiative? We understand there has been a shooting. The presidential car coming up now. We know it's the presidential car. You can see Mrs. Kennedy's pink suit. There's a Secret Service man spread eagle over the top of the car. We understand Governor and Mrs. Connolly are in the car with President and Mrs. Kennedy. We can't see who has been hit, if anybody's been hit, but apparently something is wrong here. Something is terribly wrong. I'm in behind the motorcade. Now you follow them. It looks as though they're going to Parkland Hospital. We're on the road to Parkland at this time. Most people who were alive in 1963 can tell you exactly where they were and what they were doing when President John Fitzgerald Kennedy was shot in Dallas on November 22, 1963. The event shook the nation. Kennedy was a beloved figure, handsome, charming, a World War II vet, and decorated war hero, a champion of the underdog. His endearing Boston accent, his elegant family, and his beautiful wife Jackie all went a long way towards capturing the imagination of the nation. JFK did have a whiff of prestige, that's for sure. The Kennedy family was wealthy, and they had been involved in the Massachusetts government for generations before JFK came onto the scene. He attended Princeton before finishing his degree at Harvard. Not a shabby education and his wife Jackie's family from New York had similar pedigree and wealth. Both JFK and Jackie were Catholic, though JFK is actually still the only Catholic president to date. Because of this, they stood a bit apart from the old-school American WASP elite. 
So there was a feeling of newness and change that came along with JFK's election. Plenty of this also had to do with JFK's age. He was only 43 when he was elected to the presidency, and he's still the youngest man to ever be elected. His political views were refreshing as well. JFK was unusually progressive, even among Democrats. He supported desegregation and the civil rights movement. He raised minimum wage, increased social security benefits, introduced housing bills, and expanded library services. His foreign policy decisions are also important to delve into. They'll come into play as we sift through explanations for the assassination. JFK's tenure in office was during the height of the Cold War, so much of what he was dealing with on the international stage centered around Soviet-backed communist governments, specifically in Cuba. In April 1961, the CIA, military, and anti-Castro Cuban exiles conspired to invade Cuba and overthrow Fidel Castro and his communist government. This was known as the Bay of Pigs invasion. Kennedy okayed the plan, but he didn't authorize U.S. air support. The plans went awry, and some members of the CIA considered the lack of air forces to be the reason why the invasion failed. The entire fiasco was a major blow to the Kennedy administration's reputation. In October 1962, Kennedy successfully steered the U.S. through the Cuban Missile Crisis, when the U.S. discovered the Soviet Union had been constructing ballistic missile sites in Cuba. Through a combination of tactics, including negotiation and a naval blockade, Kennedy was able to convince the USSR's premier, Nikita Khrushchev, to dismantle the missile sites. This obviously looked great to most of the U.S. public, But there were some more conservative elements within the government and the army that considered Kennedy's approach too conciliatory. They would have favored an all-out invasion of Cuba. Right. And while this was not widely known at the time of Kennedy's death, he had actually, a little more than a month before his assassination, ordered a complete withdrawal of American troops from Vietnam. While he certainly wasn't a pacifist or a supporter of communism, he clearly had an inclination towards peace and negotiation over warfare. The CIA wasn't happy with his less aggressive attitude towards communism. You may know that the CIA was established specifically to fight communism at the beginning of the Cold War. Anti-Castro Cubans, who are working with the CIA to overthrow Fidel Castro, had a bone to pick with him for the same reason. The military-industrial complex wasn't happy with them either, as these companies make money by supplying arms and other items for war. So his changing stance on the war in Vietnam was beginning to attract a lot of attention as it leaked out of the White House in 1962. And of course, the communists, both Cuban and Soviet, didn't love him either. Despite his more peaceful, pro-negotiation stances, he was still the leader of capitalist America. It's clear JFK had a lot of enemies, a lot of potential assassins. But officially, it was Lee Harvey Oswald who killed him. The government's 1964 Warren report on JFK's assassination presents Lee Harvey Oswald's life as one characterized by, quote, isolation, frustration, and failure. He appeared to have great difficulty in finding a meaningful place in the world, end quote. 
So he fits the profile of the typical isolated loner that we often see reported in major shootings. Yes, he had a difficult childhood and even spent some time in an orphanage. His mother was unable to care for him for a period of time after his father died. He joined the Marines at age 17, maybe to find some stability and structure, but this is a bit odd. He started to study Marxism and the Russian language while in the service. Based on notes from the Warren Commission, it seems likely he actually studied Russian in the military language school. It's unclear how or why this training happened, but it's not something Marines generally had access to unless they had some kind of assignment relating to the Soviet Union. It's hard to overstate how seriously the military took the threat of communist infiltration into the U.S., much less the military back then. This was still the tail end of the notorious Red Scare of the 1940s and 50s. It's certainly unusual that Oswald was able to study Marxism and Russian during this time period. It gets stranger. In 1959, Oswald left the Marines abruptly, apparently to care for his sick mother. But after a few days at home, he left the United States and defected to the Soviet Union, where he declared to the U.S. Embassy that he wanted to renounce his American citizenship and give the Soviets all his information about naval operations. This meant military secrets. And even though Oswald openly announced his plan to share secrets with a foreign adversary, the U.S. Embassy didn't appear to take any action against him. It was actually the Soviets who rejected Oswald and told him to leave the USSR. In response, he attempted suicide, apparently in despair. He slid his wrists and spent a week in a Soviet hospital. It was only after that incident that the Soviets relented and allowed him to stay in the country. But he didn't stay long. In 1962, he and the Soviet woman he had married a year earlier were allowed to re-enter the U.S., He had apparently become disillusioned with the hardships of life under communism and wanted to return home. His re-entry was possible because, for all his talk at the U.S. Embassy, he never actually did fill out the paperwork to give up his citizenship. He was also only able to make the trip back to the U.S. because he was gifted with a, quote, repatriation loan by the U.S. State Department. This loan is given to destitute Americans abroad in order to help them return home. According to the Warren Report, the State Department decided to give him the loan, quote, because his unstable character and prior criticism of the United States would make his continued presence in the Soviet Union damaging to the prestige of the United States, end quote. So Oswald was able to re-enter the U.S. exactly because he was critical of the U.S.? Yes. The idea was that if he was abroad, his politics were an embarrassment to the country. Okay, you'd think this would mean he'd have been a person of interest to law enforcement agencies back in the U.S. and that his activities would have been monitored in some way. But as conspiracy theorists have noted, this didn't happen. Back in the U.S., Oswald hopped around from job to job throughout 1962 and 63, eventually landing in Dallas in October 1963, where he got his job at the Texas School Book Depository. This was only a month before the assassination. He quickly got involved with some communist pro-Castro Cuban groups, particularly one called Fair Play for Cuba. 
This group disliked the Kennedy administration on principle due to the ideological battle between communism and capitalism. His involvement in a communist group is interesting considering his disillusionment with communism before he left Russia. Although this does fit with the Warren Report's theory of a loner-type gunman at odds with the world. He was back in the U.S. and couldn't hold down a job. He felt out of place, and he got involved in another outsider cause. Consistent ideology may not have been his strong suit, but his search for a place to fit in does make sense. Oswald's wife also later testified that he had intended to kill a right-wing activist and retired army officer earlier in 1963, which the Warren Commission pointed to as evidence of his willingness to kill. His loner personality and his alleged plans to kill an activist in early 1963 make up the long and short of the motive the Warren Report found for Oswald. He was pinpointed as the lone shooter primarily because they didn't find evidence of anyone else being involved. Then again, the way they handled the evidence wasn't necessarily so thorough. We'll look at the handling of the evidence as well as what actually happened on November 22, 1963, the day of JFK's assassination, after a quick break. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life, at least not the ones you're thinking of, but they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home, like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. Here's the official story of the assassination of John F. Kennedy, as it was pieced together by the President's Commission on the Assassination of President Kennedy, generally called the Warren Commission. According to the 888-page report the Warren Commission submitted to President Lyndon B. Johnson, Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone in shooting President Kennedy. On November 22, 1963, he installed himself in a six-floor window of the Texas School Book Depository, his place of employment. The window overlooks Dealey Plaza, which the presidential motorcade was scheduled to pass through during JFK's trip to the city. I appreciate your being here this morning. Mrs. Kennedy is organizing herself. It takes longer. But of course she looks better than we do when she does it. But we appreciate your welcome. This city's been a great western city. 
Just before 12.30 p.m., JFK rode in an open convertible limousine with his wife Jackie, Texas Governor John Connolly, and Connolly's wife Nellie. From the book depository window, Oswald shot three bullets from a 6.5-millimeter Manlicker Carcano rifle. The first passed through Kennedy's neck and Governor Connolly's right side and wrist. The second missed entirely. The third hit Kennedy's head. The commission equivocates about the order of the three shots, but this is their best guess. It's undisputed that Oswald fired his gun from the book depository window. Law enforcement agencies found his rifle on the sixth floor of the building, covered in his fingerprints, with three spent shells nearby. At least one witness saw a man of Oswald's description aiming a rifle to fire from the sixth floor window. But it's worth mentioning that a lot of other witnesses saw and heard things inconsistent with the commission's conclusion, namely that all three shots were fired from the book depository. After the shooting, Oswald immediately fled the book depository. He was next seen 45 minutes later when, according to witnesses, he shot and killed a Dallas police officer. Spent shells from that shooting were matched to a pistol owned by Oswald. When he was apprehended in a movie theater about an hour and 10 minutes after JFK was shot, he had this gun in his possession. He resisted arrest at the theater, claiming that he didn't know what he was under arrest for. I didn't shoot anybody, sir. I haven't been told what I'm here for. You have a lawyer? No, sir, I don't. He also famously claimed that he was, quote, just a patsy. The commission dismissed this as empty rhetoric, but conspiracy theorists have found this piece of information more meaningful. The commission also addressed the shooting of Oswald two days later by Dallas nightclub owner Jack Ruby. While Oswald was being escorted from the local police headquarters to the county jail on November 24th, Ruby stepped out from the gathered crowd and fatally shot Oswald in the abdomen. The commission determined that Ruby, like Oswald, acted alone. They stated that Ruby had been driven temporarily insane by grief and was acting on the chivalrous impulse to spare Jackie Kennedy the pain of testifying against Oswald at his trial. Oswald's own murder just days after the assassination, before he got a chance to explain himself in court, is one of the most suspicious elements of the story. If he was working with anyone else, he was silenced before he was able to reveal his co-conspirators. But it's also possible that Ruby's shooting of Oswald was just as senseless and random as Oswald's shooting of JFK it can be comforting to look for a deeper meaning behind acts of violence. But sometimes a murder of passion is just a murder of passion. There are a few other strange factors of the JFK assassination that conspiracy theorists were already latching onto even in the immediate aftermath of the events. The national importance of the shooting and the suspicious elements surrounding it motivated Lyndon B. Johnson to set up the Warren Commission a week after the assassination. American citizens and foreign governments, too, wanted confirmation that the JFK assassination hadn't been orchestrated by some kind of powerful conspiracy. It was important to make it clear that this wasn't a coup d'etat, and the American government had remained stable and in control. 
President Johnson knew he needed to put together an investigative force with a spotless reputation to give that confirmation to the public. He chose Supreme Court Chief Justice Earl Warren as chairman of his president's commission on the assassination of President Kennedy. Warren was the chief justice who led the Supreme Court on Brown versus Board of Education and the man from whom the commission takes its nickname, the Warren Commission. The other six members of the commission were current or former members of the government, including Alan Dulles, former director of the CIA, who had resigned after the Bay of Pigs invasion. The commission conducted 522 interviews with witnesses, some in person, some via statements and sworn affidavits. But aside from the interviews, a huge portion of the information it relied on was generated by the FBI. This fact ultimately hindered the public's confidence in the commission. We'll get to that in a minute. First, let's look at the eyewitness testimony the Warren Commission collected. Most likely, the biggest problem with pinning the crime on Oswald as a lone shooter was the so-called Grassy Knoll. Before Oswald was arrested, many witnesses thought that this was where JFK's shooter was posted. After it was confirmed that Oswald was stationed at the book depository, many witnesses still believe there must have been a second shooter located on the knoll. This would potentially mean Oswald wasn't working alone. The grassy knoll was a grassy area that, like the book depository, overlooked Dealey Plaza and the presidential motorcade at the time of the shooting. At least 33 witnesses who spoke to the Warren Commission reported that they heard shots fired from this area, including two who saw a puff of smoke in the area at the time of the shooting. One of those who saw smoke was Lee Bowers, a railroad worker on duty in a switching tower overlooking the knoll. He claimed in his testimony that he saw two men standing on the fence along the top of the knoll just before the assassination, and a puff of smoke or a flash of light in their vicinity at the time of the shooting. Bowers also saw several vehicles coming in and out of a dead-end street that ran between the book depository and the knoll in the 20 minutes prior to the shooting. Bowers' testimony does point to suspicious activity, if not actual gunfire, coming from the knoll, and fits in with all the testimony of witnesses who heard shots from that area. The commission didn't do much to disprove either Bowers or the other witnesses' reports that at least one shot came from the knoll. The two men and the vehicles Bowers saw were never located or questioned by the commission. They didn't even seem to have made a serious effort in that direction. And they concluded that the witnesses who all thought they heard shots coming from the knoll must have been confused by the chaos of the moment and the echoey quality of sound in the plaza. Not the most convincing explanation. Right? To make it more unconvincing, multiple ear witnesses within the book depository only reported hearing one or two shots fired in their testimonies to the commission. Pair this with the fact that so many people think a shot or shots came from the grassy knoll, and you have to wonder, if three bullets were fired, Did they really all originate from the depository window? We and a lot of critics of the commission aren't 100% convinced by the Warren report here. But if the commission was so convinced there was only one shooter, there must be some other evidence supporting their conclusion. For instance, Kennedy's autopsy report. 
Well, this is where things get really interesting. The autopsy report is far from straightforward and unimpeachable evidence. In fact, the treatment of Kennedy's body after his death is one of the most troubling aspects of the whole case. According to Texas law, the autopsy should have happened at the hospital in Dallas where President Kennedy was rushed immediately after the shooting. A preliminary examination was done in Dallas, but the body was then rushed illegally by Kennedy's staff to Washington, D.C., where the full autopsy was directed by a pathology specialist who had virtually no experience with gunshot wounds. And, for some reason, the doctor burned his autopsy notes just two days after the operation. I'm no doctor, but that definitely does not sound like standard procedure to me. In addition to that, the Dallas doctors initially told the press that the wound in Kennedy's neck was a wound of entry, meaning a bullet would have had to have come from the front. The Washington doctors, who did a full examination of the wounds during the autopsy, disagreed. Faced with these conflicting reports, the commission asked Dallas doctors if they thought they may have been mistaken about the wound in the neck being an entry wound. Most of them concluded they had been. But many factors left people skeptical about how much the medical evidence could be trusted. First off, the pathology specialist who traditionally studies the causes and effects of diseases was an odd choice of autopsy doctor. Then there's the civilian doctor's initial difference of opinion from the federally contracted doctors and the burning of the notes. There were even other mistakes made during the autopsy, including variances of up to four inches in the autopsy report about where exactly the bullets punctured Kennedy's body. There does seem to be a shocking amount of negligence and outright error around the autopsy procedure. It's certainly possible that this was the result of human error and the chaos and stress surrounding a presidential shooting, but it's understandable why many people suspect that something about the president's wounds was purposely being hidden from the public. Especially considering that Kennedy's brain, as well as other key matter from the autopsy that should have been preserved, disappeared after the autopsy was finished. This news broke in 1972, after coroner and Warren Commission critic Cyril Wecht was granted permission to see the autopsy materials. He was able to access the x-rays and autopsy photos, but the actual physical material of the autopsy was simply not where it was supposed to be, nor has it been found since. By taking a closer look at what remains of JFK's brain, it's possible we may find new evidence about the angle and trajectory of the third bullet, which hit Kennedy in the head. Unfortunately, this evidence has been mysteriously missing for decades and may be lost forever. There's another fascinating and unresolved part of the Warren Commission's investigation, the so-called Second Oswald. After the assassination, reports came in from numerous eyewitnesses claiming that in the months leading up to the shooting, they'd seen a certain Lee Harvey Oswald in various places around Dallas. At least six people reported seeing Oswald at gun ranges shooting a rifle that appeared to be a Manlicker Garcano, the very gun used to shoot Kennedy. But the commission could find no evidence or records to prove Oswald was ever there. 
Oswald also reportedly had a rifle fitted with a telescopic sight and test drove a Lincoln Mercury in the Dallas area. But these alleged sightings are highly improbable, since Oswald bought his Mannlicher Carcano already fitted with a sight, and he didn't know how to drive. The commission determined that this reported Lee Oswald could not have been the Lee Harvey Oswald who shot the president, and the witnesses were either lying or were mistaken. But why would all these witnesses lie? Did someone coerce them in an attempt to establish suspicious sightings of Oswald in and around Dallas before the assassination? If so, what was their endgame? The commission never answered these questions. After determining that the second Oswald could not have been Lee Harvey Oswald, they cut off investigation into these strange eyewitness reports. It may seem irresponsible on the part of the commission to leave such a big stone unturned, but there's no hard evidence contradicting their suggestion that these reports were either mistaken identifications, random lies, or faulty memories. Fair point, but in a case this important, how many stones will we find unturned? Let's look at another key figure, Oswald's killer, Jack Ruby. He's an interesting figure, and conspiracy theorists have definitely looked to him as evidence for their theories. Ruby was reportedly connected to both the mob and the FBI. Some speculate that Oswald was working with the mob, and Ruby eliminated him to stop him from talking after he was arrested. According to the commission, the FBI and CIA investigated both Oswald's mob connections and any connection between Oswald and Ruby, but found no evidence of either. The commission was apparently convinced by the word of the law enforcement agencies, but the reports the FBI and CIA were giving the Warren Commission were later definitely proven to be incomplete. More on that after a quick break. Now back to the story. After the tragic, nationally harrowing assassination of John F. Kennedy in 1963, the Warren Commission was called together by new President Lyndon B. Johnson to resolve some of the questions surrounding the assassination. But in a lot of ways, the commission raised more questions than it answered. The entire investigation and many of its conclusions were very convenient, without being convincingly thorough. In the following years, conspiracy theorists sifted through the 888-page report and its endless indexes of testimonies, spotting suspicious evidence that had been dismissed and spinning their own theories about what might have happened to JFK. Let's dive into some of the public suspicion that emerged in the years after the Warren Report was released. In 1966, three years after JFK's death, New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison began a criminal probe into the assassination. His investigation centered on David Ferry, a shadowy figure with suspected contacts in both the mob and the CIA. He was also Lee Harvey Oswald's Civil Air Patrol commander in New Orleans, and he'd made a suspicious trip to Texas immediately after the assassination. Well, the Warren Commission did look into Ferry, interviewing him and a few other of Oswald's contacts in New Orleans, but they determined that Ferry didn't know Oswald personally and dismissed him as a person of interest. But Garrison wasn't so easily convinced. He publicly pronounced he was going after the loose ends of the Warren report, starting with Ferry. 
But four days after Garrison went public with the probe, Ferry, his key suspect, turned up dead. The coroner reported that he died of natural causes, a brain hemorrhage. But Garrison wasn't convinced that the brain hemorrhage was the result of natural causes. A suicide note was found in Ferry's apartment. Part of it reads, quote, To leave this life is, for me, a sweet prospect. I find nothing in it that is desirable, and on the other hand, everything that is loathsome, end quote. It seems Ferry felt moved to take his own life. Moved by himself, or perhaps by others. Was he murdered or goaded into suicide by either mob or CIA contacts who could connect him to the JFK assassination? While Ferry's death is certainly suspicious, Garrison's case crashed spectacularly without him as a witness. While the DA continued to make grandiose statements, including that he believed pro-Castro Cubans, the CIA, the Mafia, members of the Dallas Police Force, and other shadowy players in the military-industrial complex were involved, he wasn't able to prove anything in court. His case did fail, but his attitude exemplifies the country's widespread suspicion towards the Warren report. People weren't convinced. That's true. And it helps explain why, in the 1970s, the government appointed another commission to revisit the Warren Commission's work. Polls through the late 1960s and early 70s continuously reported that the majority of people held suspicion towards the Warren Report's story of the assassination. The notorious Zap Ruder film, a home movie which captures the assassination on film, was broadcast on television for the first time in 1970, allowing the American people to watch and assess the assassination for themselves. But JFK's assassination soon slipped into the background of American politics. The Vietnam War dragged on under LBJ and then Nixon. And then, in 1972, the government was rocked by the Watergate scandal when it came to light that President Nixon's administration had broken into the Democratic National Committee headquarters. Watergate seriously undermined the American people's faith in their government. The president had not only broken the law, cheated, and lied for political ends, but he'd enlisted other government agencies like the CIA and FBI to help him. There was a major erosion of trust, not just in Nixon himself, but in the whole system of government that had enabled him. It didn't help when stories started breaking about the CIA's involvement in destabilizing and attempting to assassinate foreign leaders, including Cuba's Castro, Chile's Allende, and the Dominican Republic's Trujillo, all without the knowledge of the American people and even much of the American government. In 1974, the New York Times broke a story reporting that the CIA had conducted a massive illegal surveillance operation against U.S. citizens involved in the anti-war movement. The public distrust of the government, and particularly of the CIA, came to a head. New Orleans DA Garrison's probe had seared an association between the CIA and Kennedy's death into the American people's minds. With the CIA once again under intense scrutiny, it's not surprising that Kennedy's death came back into the spotlight. Starting in 1975, there was a virtual deluge of congressional investigations that addressed the assassination. First, in January 1975, 
President Gerald Ford appointed a commission to investigate the domestic activity of the CIA, including its potential involvement in the Kennedy assassination. That commission, known as the Rockefeller Commission, confirmed the reports of widespread illegal domestic surveillance by the CIA, but it found no credible proof of CIA or any other conspiratorial participation in Kennedy's murder. However, the American people were not satisfied with the commission's findings on JFK. The executive director of the Rockefeller Commission had been the assistant counsel on the Warren Commission, and his appointment struck many as suspicious. Members of Congress started calling for a new investigation focused specifically on Kennedy's death, as well as the likewise horrifying assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. in 1968. In 1975, the House Civil and Constitutional Rights Subcommittee held hearings, specifically on the FBI's relationship with Lee Harvey Oswald and Jack Ruby, Oswald's shooter. These hearings were largely sparked by a New York Times story reporting that top FBI officials had received a note from Oswald 10 days before the assassination conveying violent threats towards the Dallas police. This meant that FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover had perjured himself when he told the Warren Commission that he had no reason to believe Oswald was capable of violence. The hearings revealed that the FBI destroyed the note from Oswald and ignored what could be construed as a warning about the upcoming assassination attempt. It also revealed that Jack Ruby may have been on the FBI's payroll in the 1950s as a paid informant, or that he was at least considered as a possible informant. During the Warren Commission's investigation, the FBI questioned Ruby at the commission's request and confirmed that he had no ties to the mob or to Lee Harvey Oswald. But the Bureau never disclosed their own association with Ruby to the commission. Needless to say, the American people's mistrust of the Warren report was again proven justified. Meanwhile, the Senate Select Committee to Study Governmental Operations with Respect to Intelligence Activities, better known as the Church Committee, also decided to deal specifically with the Kennedy assassination. While its investigation did not confirm a conspiracy to kill Kennedy by the FBI or anyone else, the report was sharply critical of the FBI's and CIA's investigations into the assassination. They pointed out that the FBI investigation, quote, rather than addressing its investigation to all significant circumstances, including all possibilities of conspiracy, focused narrowly on Lee Harvey Oswald, end quote. They also criticized the CIA for withholding information from the Warren Commission, specifically about the agency's failed plots to assassinate Fidel Castro. U.S. plans to kill Castro could definitely serve as motivators for a Cuban assassination attempt on JFK, which would have been important for the commission to know. But the CIA kept that information a secret. Nothing new was proven by the Church Committee, but the results of the Warren Commission were definitely taken to task for their shoddy investigation. These smaller, limited probes into the Kennedy assassination and the Warren Commission only fueled the fire of suspicion around the case, rather than resolving it. So, in September 1976, Congress finally voted the House Select Committee on Assassinations into existence. 
The purpose of the committee was to reinvestigate the Kennedy and Martin Luther King Jr. assassinations. Unfortunately, but maybe unsurprisingly, the new committee was racked with political infighting from the beginning. It wasn't until the spring of 1977, when the committee chairman and chief counsel were pushed out and replaced, that work really started. And work really starting is a relative term here. When the committee's report was finally published in the summer of 1979, nearly three years and $5.5 million later, the investigation answered very few questions. The major revision the committee made to the Warren Commission's conclusions was that there was, in fact, a shooter on the grassy knoll, and that this conspirator shot at, but missed, the president's car. There was no evidence of where this bullet went, but apparently it didn't land on the president, the motorcade, or even the crowds around the motorcade. The committee based this conclusion of a second shooter and a fourth shot on newly discovered acoustic evidence of the crime. A Dallas police officer had apparently had an audio recording from the day of the assassination languishing in his office all these years. The initial acoustic analyst stated that there was a 50-50 chance that a fourth shot had been fired from the knoll. But additional experts gave the odds a close to 100% chance, and the initial analyst revised his opinion based on their findings. There does seem to be a bit of confusion among the experts, but the final report states with confidence that there was a fourth shot from a second shooter on the knoll. This would mean Oswald wasn't the only person after Kennedy, and perhaps not working alone. To the frustration of many, the final report failed to answer questions of who was involved in this conspiracy, how it was enacted, or what its aims were. The committee found insufficient evidence to conclude that the Soviet or Cuban governments, anti-Castro-Cuban groups, or organized crime groups were involved with the assassination. But it didn't fully refute the involvement of any of these groups either. So besides reversing the Warren Commission's single-shooter theory, the House committee didn't accomplish much of anything. Even that one development, if you follow the story a bit further, comes more or less to nothing. A Gallery magazine article, followed by a 1980 FBI study, and finally a 1982 study by the National Academy of Sciences, all analyzed the committee's only real piece of evidence for its fourth-shot theory, the Dallas police officer's radio recording. They determined that the timing of the gunshots heard on the recording were inconsistent with the JFK shooting, and the shots on the recording must have actually come from something called crosstalk, or interruption from radio waves. Essentially, this means that the shots captured on the police radio recording actually happened somewhere else in the city and were only caught on this recording because of a transmission error. Just a few years after the House Committee report was released, the only real departure it gave us from the Warren report was discredited. Things were left in an even messier, more confusing place than they'd been in before. For one of the most consequential assassinations of the 20th century, the Kennedy investigations leave a lot to be desired. It's no wonder conspiracy theories have continued to flourish regarding what really happened to JFK. We've given you a taste of what was off about the initial Warren Commission investigation and what was unsatisfying about the follow-up probes because it's impossible to get through this official story without noticing the holes and incongruities. 
But there's plenty more to explore next episode when we dive into the ideas conspiracy theorists have proposed. And some of those ideas do seem to wrap up all the loose threads Congress left hanging. We aren't endorsing any of these theories, just presenting them as possibilities. Conspiracy theory number one. Lee Harvey Oswald was working for the Soviets or the Cubans. This theory mainly comes from Oswald's time in Russia, his membership in the Fair Play for Cuba group, and from a notorious trip he made to Mexico. Conspiracy theory number two. Oswald shot Kennedy, but one of Kennedy's bodyguards accidentally shot the bullet that exited through the top of Kennedy's head, something the FBI and CIA covered up after the fact. With this one, we'll examine some of the technical aspects of the shooting and the magic bullet theory, as the Warren Report's ballistics analysis was not so affectionately nicknamed. Conspiracy theory number three. The CIA, FBI, the mob, anti-Castro Cuban groups, and the military-industrial complex banded together to assassinate JFK and used Oswald as their patsy. There are infinite variations on this theme, but the most widely believed version is probably the one set out by New Orleans DA Jim Garrison and later dramatized in Oliver Stone's 1991 Oscar-winning film, JFK. It's also the most complicated theory, involving a vast cast of characters with different motives. Next week, we'll discuss these theories and see if we can do what multiple congressional investigations couldn't finally get to the truth about what happened to John F. Kennedy. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. If you want to hear more Conspiracy Theories or listen to any of ParCast's other podcasts, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. And if you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. Tell us your favorite Conspiracy Theories on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Join us next week for more conspiracy theories and our conclusion of our two-part series on the assassination of JFK. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Muller. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Conspiracy Theories is written by Nora Battelle and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Conspiracy Theories